here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. Yes, I am Scott. And I am Ollie. Yes. There we are. And there we are. Now we have officially begun the show because we have completed the introductory portion of the show wherein we introduce ourselves and the show. We have got to at some point do the, you know, the science in between beforehand, because I will say hearing you rap before the show was the highlight of my day. It was it's the it's. It's the gift and it, that's going to keep your, on giving. And it's your birthday. So look at that. It was a little birthday gift for you. Thanks. Thanks, yeah. friend. Well, and I Appreciate just want to be clear, you, you rapped as well. So it was. A, I, I don't recall that. I do not uh-huh. recall yeah. me rapping. It was, it was a Run DMC moment. <laughs> it was. Even though we weren't rapping Run DMC. No, it was no. not. No. Oh. Well, we will not do that on, on the show. We, we will not. not. No. Because well, no. No, no, just we don't so need to explain. Reasons. People understand. Yeah, they know. Nobody they don't wants, want to hear it. No, nope, nobody wants to hear it. We didn't really want to hear it. And oh, but, but we, we were both very we were engaged in it. <laughs> All right. So you want to set up the, today's episode? Yeah. yeah. Today's episode is not about rap. Uh, today's episode is about minds and how we change them. Mm. So we've sort of uh, made a pitch about this uh, before, book. but yeah. We're, yeah. So this is this is um, we're going to talk a little bit about David McRaney's book, um, "How Minds Change," um, and and we discussed so, we discussed at one point like maybe doing this as a book group, and then we were like, yeah. eh, you know, it's a lot. Some, it's a lot. There's a lot. There's a bunch of chapters, and it's not like. You know, when we did the, uh, you know, Science in the City book group, which is way back in the like the teens of the episodes, the dark ages. Yeah. Way back, way back in the day uh, that they each chapter was distinctly different and each chapter had like real value. And I don't know if that like not that this there are valueless chapters in this. I just don't know if they connect as nicely to the show. You know? Yeah, and I think we can talk about the concepts in the book without talking about the specific chapters sure. of the book. And and I mean, Science in Between is a book that we, like I use in my methods courses as a required text and that we use as part of the professional development we're doing. You know, we were just passing out books yesterday and we were passing out Ambitious Science, science Teaching city. Books and Science in the City. You call what it science in, science in Between. Science That's... in Between. Well, that, that too. We yes. do all that. Right. <laughs> but Science in the City, uh yeah, this, that that book um we do we do use it as part of the professional development to talk about um responsive teaching and culturally yeah. responsive teaching specifically. So well, we're um, like we're like Santa. We're like you get a book or we? Oprah. You get a yeah, book. You Oprah. get a book. Look under yeah. your seat. Yeah, you get a book. We were giving out books, not this book, but the Science no. in the City book. But know? a book. Yeah, I, that's why I think we should, you know, Brian Brown, if you're out there, you got to get on the show friend i mean i'll see him in a in a month or so i can i can see if we can strong arm him onto the show but yeah we're selling books yeah well we are in fairness we have bought a lot of his books yes both both my students and now all the all the intermediate units in pennsylvania so right so we're doing yeah i i took a picture of my 60 copies of uh ambitious science teaching that were sitting on my desk until yesterday and sent it to uh to my friend Jessica Thompson and said, "Hey, she should get on the show. She, you should get on the show. You should <laughs> get always, on the show. I'm always, I'm always no, on the show. No, not you. I'm saying, <laughs> check under your chair. You're on the show. Look, no, you know, come on. not not that it's transactional, but it's kind of transactional. Wow, <laughs> wow, you heard it here first, Ollie. 
arch capitalist. Well, no. All right. It, the so, difference wait, is that wait. we found we found the value in that stuff. <sighs> you know, yes. it's not yes. like somebody's like because we've both gotten contacted by people and said, "Hey, can we come on your show?" And it's like the no. people who want to be on the show were just like, no. "Eh," no. you know. It's like people. It's like people who want to be leaders. You're always like, uh, mm-hmm. let's let's be careful with that, right? Um, okay, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> no. What we are here to talk about is um, what we did is we just read uh, Ali and I read the um, the introductory re-read. chapter. We read the introductory chapter to Dave McRaney's book, and I think we're just going to talk about some of the core ideas that he brings up there, and and why we think they're interesting in the context of science teaching like why yeah. should we care about this book um which is ostensibly about you know changing people's minds about more around things like you know conspiracy theories and yeah. um sort of edge case thinking in a lot of cases like almost like people who are recruited into cults uh level of <laughs> um of it's- thinking so it is wild that like yeah there are definitely connections not that we're thinking that students you know science beliefs are like conspiracy theories or anything (laughs) like that but i think that they you know people have formed their ideas and their understanding of the world by existing in it and they've made these decisions in terms of how they see the world right and and those are like i think the the thing that's important is that people have personal connections to their beliefs. Yeah. And well, and and if you attack their beliefs, then they are going to feel like you're atta- they're attacking their person. Yeah. Yeah, and they're going to armor up. They're going to be like, "Dude, right. I mean, I think that's the, the well, there's lots of key ideas from even from this introductory chapter, but certainly I think that the analogy here is um well, even even in the areas that people haven't thought deep, I mean, I think this is the fascinating thing that even in areas where people haven't thought deeply about issues, they still can have that sort of a response to a sure. challenging of their own ideas um, that they've j- may have only just thought up a little while ago. Um, so it is it is interesting, but I think you know fundamentally, if you if you want to think about what learning is, learning is changing people's minds, um, and so that. In all contexts, it makes sense to think about what it means to change somebody's mind um, in all contexts of learning. So it's not just in these sort of edge cases where you're trying to convince somebody or trying to, I think the word that that um, that I bring up and like from the way that he talks about this is is persuasion or persuade, right? Right. Um, and he contrasts that with coercion. And we've talked a little bit about that notion of the difference between persuasion and coercion. Um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, well, why don't, why don't you, uh, pick, could you sort of picked something already that you want to talk about? So do you want to talk about the piece about identity and people's ideas and how he frames that? Or what, where do you want to start? I don't know. There's so many, so many places. I mean, the, like, I think that the thing I found most compelling in, in this, in this section was about, about the story about the conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. right. Or like he was talking specifically about, uh, a group of people who, um, I guess it was a TV show or something in in Great Britain where they took a group of people at, who had believed in conspiracy theories 
and then would bring them to confront, you know, those things like straight on. So confront they took evidence, 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 right? Yeah. Well, sometimes it would be people involved, yeah. you know, or like so. Um, the one person that they feature in in, in this in an introduction uh, was somebody who didn't believe in nine eleven or believed mm-hmm. that I mean believed that the buildings you know crashed. But right. felt that it it just couldn't have happened the way that you know the the story is right quote yeah. unquote that um that it was actually something that was much more um nefarious as if there was something more nefarious than you know taking some planes and dry, right. you know flying them in but that it was some sort of inside job that this yeah. was like that and um and, and so he government he was government led right. inside job yeah, yeah government led inside job and and that um and this this guy was like I guess pretty big in that that community like he was like a person who you know was on whatever the discussion boards were or whatever the police yeah and youtube right and he was like a person of note in this community and then when they had taken him and he had met engineers and met like and they had taken him and actually trained like he had gone and learned how to fly or Mm. land right and they're like Mm. so like like showing him or helping to convince him that this is credible like the yeah. well you know, a whole busload of hymns right so right. he was one of the people on the bus but there were lots of people on this bus that right. were 9-11 deniers right and and he was like he just was like yeah i don't and he was almost like a like embarrassed that he yeah. held these beliefs and then after seeing the evidence you know he's like yeah i mean and then the the part that I I think was really troubling was that the community like attacked him mm-hmm. like made when, when his... he came out and said look right. I've been convinced that this is all right yeah. and they're like they they got to you the government got to you yeah you know? it was like wow yeah you know no I mean he had death threats he had to leave the country he ended up living abroad after after that right. happened right so and they had cha- he had to change his name yeah and yeah so there was there was a lot there that I think. You know, and it's it and it sounds it like surface level, like okay, what does what's that have to do with anything with, uh, you know, education? What does that have anything to do with classroom learning? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I think that really uh, uh, connects to that personal identity piece, right? That our belief, like, and it's not just our individual identities; it's our identities in communities, right? This mm-hmm. person was part of a community in which this these beliefs, and so when we you know, are teaching students concepts that might stand in stark contrast to their, you know, personal beliefs or their beliefs in their families or in their communities. And that mm-hmm. happens all the time, right? Yeah. And this is where like a lot of the politicization, politicization of education comes in right now. It's like, well, why are you challenging? This is our personal. Well, it's like, okay, we're trying to help, you know, develop evidence-based explanations, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, but, but I think the, and, and it doesn't even have to be, I mean, I think the interesting thing is it doesn't have to be in stark contrast. It just has to be in contrast. Right. right. So, so um, <clears throat> it is, it is fascinating to think about like, I mean, essentially all, all of our students come to classes with experiences and in some cases, very strong um, enculturation into understandings of the world that science may may challenge, right? Science classes may push against them. And so thinking about how do we do that in a way that is productive, constructive, and not uh, not with the notion of 
cultural erasure, right? Where we want these people to destroy their identities in order to become scientists. Like that's not what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but at the same time, we are trying to um, help people understand how to think about the world in a particular way that involves evidence and reasoning of a particular kind about the natural world. And that there is a value to knowing that kind of, of thinking, even if you have lots of other kinds of thinking that you use for, for, um, you know, solving problems or answering questions in other parts of your life. I, w- I would, I think that in this chapter, it makes a pretty good case that it's not just about the cultural destruction. It's about the cultural survival, right? Mm. Like that in order and, I I know that probably people hate when when we read, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do a section because I think it's it's relevant. And he says, uh, and this is again, this is David McRaney in the book How How Minds Change. So he says, I invited the famed cognitive scientist Hugo Mercier, an expert on human reasoning and argumentation, to be a guest on my show. He explained that we evolved to reach consensus, yeah. sometimes on the facts, sometimes on right and wrong, sometimes on what to eat for dinner by banging our heads together. Groups that did a better job of reaching consensus by both producing and evaluating arguments were better at reaching communal goals and outsurvived those that didn't. No. And that is exactly what the, we're trying to, you know, give kids, our students, and larger beyond, right? Beyond the walls of our classroom the skills to do that because I think some of it is just like we've gotten in these silos and it's just like, you know, in these echo chambers. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I highlighted that same quote. um, And I think it gets at one of the fundamental things we talk about science teaching is what we want in science classrooms is we want a large diversity of ideas. And then we want to, in the words of McRaney, uh, or actually, I guess, Mercier, um, we want to bang our heads together to try and reach consensus about which ideas we think are the best ideas. And and I think what McRaney is saying in this book is that's an, that's a, an evolved process for humans. It's one of the reasons that humans are successful is that we develop this pattern of Everybody sort of does their own thinking a little bit. And then what makes it powerful is we come together and talk about that and reach consensus about which ideas are the best. So we've distributed the load of the thinking across lots of people, um, which leads to better solutions, right? And there's tons of references to this in all sorts of other areas of life and books and things like that. But I think Mm -hmm. fundamentally, that's this piece of like more ideas in conversation with each other lead to better outcomes. And to your point, I think what's happening now is we're splintering off and, and, and we're only having conversations with people whose ideas we essentially agree with already. And the problem with that is you don't get an improvement of ideas. You get actually the opposite of that. You get this spiraling off into more and more confirming of your own understandings rather than some some sort of counter pressure to that, that brings you back towards the idea of consensus. Like we really are, have a situation now that reinforces dissensus and, and people breaking into their small communities and just agreeing with each other. Yeah. I think beyond that though, he gives, you know, I think that whole persuasion piece, which, you know, I, I think he delineates between coercion and persuasion yeah. right and i think that 
the like all you have to do, if you turn on any you know nightly news or any of the you know big talking heads when they have a guest on who di- offers in a different opinion it's argumentative but not in like the productive way it's almost in the coercive way where they're cutting them off or like you know there's you know some famous governors right now who that is like I was watching a uh uh um what is it uh, this week tonight mm-hmm. is that yeah, yeah sure with Jamie Jamie Oliver Jamie Oliver no no oh, that's the chef John Oliver Sean Oliver different Oliver mm-hmm. I should know my Olivers right? you should I, I you should, should you of all people should know, know your Olivers come on Olivers. <laughs> they're know? your people you there are know. my people right um but uh John Oliver had on like this interview uh, that you know, a reporter was doing with a governor, and the governor was just attacking the reporter and cutting cutting them off. And it was all it was not a persuasion. It was about it was very coercive. It was very coercive, like, and it was like it was combative. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that might even be called combative, not coercive, because right. I mean, in some sense, the governor doesn't have any power to coerce there. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this distinction between persuasion and coercion, like I said, we've talked about this on the show before, but I think it is central to how we think about schooling because yeah. um, schools are fu- fundamentally coercive environments, right? Like if if a kid has a different opinion than the teacher or a different idea than the teacher and they express that idea in an assessment, they, they are punished for it quite literally, right? Their grade goes down if they have a different idea than the teacher. And that's, that's, I think, almost the definition of a coercive environment. So I think it is interesting to think about, like, how, and, and I think the main reason he makes the distinction between persuasion and coercion is to say that coercion is very ineffective on humans. It doesn't change people's minds. That doesn't mean that they won't behave in ways that that look like their minds have been changed, which is what we do with kids in school, right? This is why when you have kids who have beliefs, say, about climate change that they get from from home and they come into school and they're told, no, that's wrong, you have yeah. to believe, they essentially bifurcate their notions. So there's the school version of how they think, and then there's right. the home version. And and they do the school because they have to for the grade, and at home they have their, their true understandings or true beliefs. Um, and, and that, and that's in large part because schools are coercive and not persuasive. Like we're not, but, but then to say, well, what does persuasive mean? Cause I think that's something that he well, I was, was going to just do that. I was just, just going to like read. So this is again, uh, from the introduction. I don't know. What is this? Yeah. Daniel O'Keefe. Yeah, Daniel O'Keefe, uh, professor of communication, defines it as pers- persuasion is a successful, intentional effort at influencing another's mental state through communication in a circumstance in which the persuadee has some measure of freedom. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the key piece, right? Right. Yeah, it's it comes back to that you know agency thing that we talked about in the last episode is that you know we have to recognize that not that we're giving them that they. That are that those individuals that we work with, they have agency, they have freedom, right? And the and the more we try to be coercive and trying to convince right. them, they're just going to like go, okay, either they're going to like just not participate or like act up or whatever, 
or they're just going to tell right. us like a like like a parrot what we want to hear and then yeah. go back and and if we're really interested in changing people's beliefs about science you know and helping them better understand the how the world works or I will, I'll change I'll let me re- revise that if we're in interested in getting kids to engage in the practice of science yeah right yeah then it's not a coercive or a you know a parenting thing it's a it's persuasion. The practice yeah. of science is a persuasive practice. Yeah. Yeah. And and later in that same chapter, he talks about Richard Perloff's. Um, so differentiating coercion from persuasion when dire consequences are employed to encourage someone to act as the coercer wants them to act and presumably contrary to their preference. Right. So he says that this is ethical persuasion is in play when that when the person is free to reject the communicator. And I think ultimately schools are not places where that happens, right? right? Like you can't, what you can, you know, I guess going back to our point from the agency episode we had, like you can reject the communicator in schools, but there are consequences. And those consequences might be as simple as you get bad grades or fail the class, or they might be more complicated in that you're sent to the office or, or the, you know, the, you're you're pulled out of class by by the school safety officer, um, so right. it it gets very complicated when you when the coercee um, refuses to be coerced, right? I mean, and that's uh, that's really the fundamentals of of you know you want to talk about classroom management on some level. That's what we're talking about is is the difference between coercion and persuasion, and um, yeah, it's really fascinating, but but fundamentally this idea that like coercion doesn't work i think is really important because yeah. it really says like okay if if schools are coercive environments which i think we they they pretty much are there may well, be degrees they, they can be coercive environments well i don't know i don't i i mean you can argue that there are different levels of coercion on some level in the current way schools work but ultimately like if you if your point of view aligns with with the point of view of the, of what you're being taught, then I guess you're not coercive in that sense. But if, if your if your opinion or thinking different is different from, uh, or deviates from the way that the school is teaching, then on some level, they currently are coercive because if you express those ideas, you are punished. Um, and, and the, the person, the teacher in charge does have power. So I think, and, I, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make, this out to be that all teachers are bad people. I think the right. system is set up that way, right? I mean, that's what grades, um, how grades operate in the world is that they they largely are punishments for people who are unwilling to learn comply. the things that we're telling. Yeah, you shall comply. You shall uh, comply. Well, I mean, I, oh, I get. I don't know. I just ha- I just have a hard time. That that it's it doesn't sit well with me to think about it, it as, as a completely coercive environment because you and I are not only products but we're agents of those environments, right? Yeah. Um, and we've been successful products of those environments, right? And we are also successful agents of those environments, and so yeah. I I bristle at the concept that I may be you know contributing to a coercive environment that's yeah. really it's really hard for me to 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 like stomach you know because sure. i've spent the, like, be. right the last 30 plus years working in what you label as a coercive environment sure. and, and i've been and, there and, too and, right right 
But yeah. I think, but I think the only way that these environments change is if we are willing to to clear eyedly look at these environments as they are, rather than as the way we imagine them to be. Because I think this is this is the problem with any kind of change of practice is people are like, well, you know, it works fine right now. Why should we fix it? And and I think the problem is like if we really if we really are wanting these systems to change, we have to understand what the real problems of the system are. We can't just say, okay, well, you know, we want teachers to be more inclusive. Well, what does that mean? Or we want more equity in our classrooms. Okay. What does that mean? And, and I think taking a step back and looking at, well, are there some fundamental structures in the way that we think about schooling that, that are, deep rooted problems that we have to address if we really want to see change in these schools, then I think, yeah, so, I mean, it's so let's, let's, ta- let's, our- let's, let's examine. I know this wasn't what I'm sure this is one, what we had intended to do today, but well, let, let's let, um, if we were to say, okay, let's make this a per, cause it's a, that's a continuum, right? Coercion yeah, to, to sure. persuasive. If, if like, and I start. I'm starting to think about like, okay, if we t- like really examine the structures of schools and which ones we would have to like, would schools then be you know voluntary? Like, because we coerce students to attend school. So, mm-hmm. so are we going to say that now school is you know voluntary? You can attend if you want. Um, well, I, I like don't where think- does that where where do we where where does it break down? Like where because I think that there's you know some part of I don't know. There's got to be some structure, right? And a structure. Is in itself a coercive, you know, well, organization. I don't right? know about that. We because there are lots of structures that are not coercive, right? There are, there are, um, you know, there are ways of operating groups that that is not co- that are not coercive. I mean, I'm trying to think of specific ones off the top of my head, but you know, restorative circles and restorative practices are one example of something that's not uh, a coerce as at least as much of a coercive practice. Maybe it's still coercive. I don't know, but like, I think you know the problem fundamentally is that in any interaction there are power differences, sure, right? And wherever there's power difference differences, there's the possibility of coercion. Do I do I think that we can eliminate coercion from schools? No, I don't. Yeah. But I do think like if we think if we convince ourselves that schools are not coercive places, then we're we're doing ourselves and our students a disservice. I'm not saying that we can make them not coercive. What I can what I think we can do is make them less coercive in the same way that like when we talk about, well, are we going to turn schools into discovery learning where kids Right. investigate whatever the hell they want to no we are not because we have goals for education we have we a curriculum to, we have yeah. a yeah but we also have to look at that and say well what are what are the actual consequences of the choices about the curriculum and about the structures that we put in place and to what degree can we reduce coercion um, and think about these places because we want to model what good citizenry looks like right we, and yeah. and if we and if we continue to make schools or other institutional places coercive, then people begin to just believe that that's the way the world operates. And that's sort of where we're headed right now, which is um, that that the the sort of um, resistance to coercion that we're seeing in schools, we're seeing that same thing. Like you can argue right. that 9-11 denier is just a, a, a scaled up version of the kid in class who doesn't believe the thing the teacher's teaching, right, is or, this is a guy who doesn't want to believe the facts as as given to them by authority, so they're going to think up their own idea. Well, I I think 
it's a the example I think of are the the parents who are going, I don't want my kid to read this book, so I'm going to take it completely out of the library so no kid can read the book. That I mean, that's yeah. where because they're like bristling at there being any opportunity of there being a pers- persuasion, right? Or coercion. Right. Because they would probably, they're arguing that that's coercive, right? Yeah. And that's right. part of the reason they want it out of their, they, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's a really sticky wicket, this bit. Um, but I do think examinations, <clears throat> you know, increasingly, I think the way that education in general, research ed- around education in general is moving is deeper investigations and considerations of of issues of power in schools and and the impact of that and and that's directly related to agency so um i mean i think these these questions about persuasion versus coercion and moving moving away from a place well and there you know again there's two reasons to do this there's a sort of ethical reasons that perloff's talking about but then there's the learning reasons that right. i think we support too which is like well if it's a coercive environment if people feel like they're being that they are being told they have to change, otherwise there will be punishments, um, then the things that they learn are not deeply learned. Um, And what we really ultimately want is people to deeply learn things, to really understand them. Yeah, Um, and I think that's where he lands at the end of this chapter, mm -hmm. is that he's like, okay, you need to consider as as the person who's trying to be the persuader, right? Like you have to, you know, examine, reflect, you know, confront why, what's your motivation? Like, why, why do you want to change their mind? Why do you want to do this? Yep. You know, and recognizing that. And he, and as he says it, I want you to carry that in your mental backpack yep. as you travel, you know, through the book. But he's, he's saying, this is the thing. Like, you have to consider, like, why do you want to do this? Yep. What's your motivation? And in in science, is it because we have these facts, Right. Yep. Or is it because we want them to engage in the practice? And yep. I think that's, to me, the critical shift in the the next generation science standards, right? And yeah. I mean, and I know that's a kind of a hokey way to land this, but that's the connection that I make is like we're we're trying to change minds not because we want to try to get them to write information. We want them to get them. I mean, sure, it'd be yeah. I mean, right information is better than wrong information, right? Um, But I would rather give them the like the practice, the the engaging in the practice of science. That is the reason for me, and I think that's the reason for you, is to help them develop that the skills of reasoning and argumentation and evidence based examinations of ideas. Those are the things that are like going to help them, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that I would go one layer deeper. I agree with that. And then I would say the reason why we want them to engage in the practice is if they understand the practice and have practiced the practice, they can, yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Uh, they can engage in that in their whole life. So when they leave school, they have a, they have a tool set to deal with um, how, how to listen to other people, how to come to consensus, how to make evidence-based decisions as a community. I mean, this is what we want. We want them to engage in consensus building. We want them to return to this idea of like, your job as a human is to come with your ideas, but also be open to other ideas 
and try and figure out what's the best idea, not what's the idea that I should defend because it's mine, but what are the ideas that we all share that we can use to move forward with? Um, and I think, you know, he doesn't talk about this in this chapter, but I think one of the things that's related to that is this scale issue, um, is that we're good at doing that at small scale, but when we get, when we start scaling up and we have our communities become, you know, tens of thousands of people that we're connected to superficially through Twitter and Facebook and all these other things, it, it makes it much harder for us to engage in that process because all of the interactions are very superficial yeah. and they're, and so coming to consensus becomes much more difficult. So I do think, um, you know, we have systematic technology problems that are increasing and s- social problems that are making this harder. But, you know, going back to that original quote that you read about consensus, for me, that was a huge one. Like, Groups yep. that did a better job of reaching consensus are better at communal goals and outsurvived the other groups. And we're in a position now where we are not coming to consensus on ideas. And and that's because our communities are so big and, and broken apart. Yeah, like uh, this is going to be an aside, but I think uh, our listeners are y- used to it. Like, y- y- So you and I were working together you know, as uh, at Penn State when like right at the dawn of the, the like the Web 2.0 mm-hmm. movement, yep. right? Like yep. that. And for those of you who, you know, are pro- are younger than us, what the Web 2.0 movement was, the change from the Internet being a place for information in, in it becoming a place of participation. Yep. And so um, there was going to be like before there was a you needed like specialized skills to be able to get information on the Internet. And then someplace in like, you know, the mid 2000s, early 2000s, it shifted. And this is where things like wikis and social networks and all these things started to come out where like anybody could just put content out there. And I, you and I engaged in these conversations about like how this was going to like really democratize mm-hmm. you know sharing of ideas like because anybody could be a participant and right. that with this free exchange of ideas would be this place where a consensus would happen mm-hmm. and there are pockets in where that does that happens like you know i was listening to an adam grant podcast recently and they talked about the accuracy of wikipedia mm-hmm. that is a place where the consensus works yeah right because yeah. When when somebody puts a some idea up there, there are people who are knowledgeable about those that topic, that subject, whatever it is, who come together and they edit that page to make sure that it is the best page it can be through a, a variety of editors collaborating on that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like a host of people are, are are working together to develop that a consensus model, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. But then you have these dark underbellies of of places on on the internet where that you know ability to be a participant with very little skill you know which was the great thing is far from democratization. It yeah. is a a space in which it's the the darkest examples of what freedom of speech can look like. Yeah. Well, and I think you know again. The thing that we didn't realize in those days of like when Twitter first started and social media as a thing was just coming about, right? This idea that, well, the internet is not for distribution of information. The internet is for connecting people in the same way that telephones are or whatever, right? But in a richer, more robust way, like connection was the goal 
Um, what we didn't realize is that humans and human communities don't scale well beyond, you know, like a hundred, 150 people. And once, once you start doing that, this democratization falls apart into, into this siloing of everybody who agrees with each other gets sort of gravitationally pulled together and pulled away from the people they disagree with. And so We didn't realize that because we'd never done social things on this scale before. Like it, it was not possible to do it this way before those early days of social media. You just couldn't. You couldn't write letters or have meetings or have telephone calls or whatever that could that could have that many people interacting with each other about things. And suddenly, you could. And right. and it and it really transformed. Again, like you said, both for good and for ill. Um, and increasingly for ill, right? I mean that that the this splintering is not productive. Um, so yeah, I mean it's yeah. I know that's where we we didn't plan on going down that rabbit hole. No, but I think, but that, I think yeah. But I think it, 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 it is absolutely representative of of the things that you know McRaney talks about in this chapter. You know, yeah. and and how you know that ability to have you know public reasoning public argumentation in a respectful way in which people are open to having their minds changed not through coercion but through persuasive persuasive practices yeah. you know i think it it ha- happens you know we have to be respectful of that in classrooms we have to be respectful of that online you know in our interactions with you know our families at you know thanksgiving dinner or whatever you know right. it's everywhere yeah you know? Well, and I think so there there's one or sort of one and a half more things I want to bring up from the from this chapter that I think we will have to revisit because we spent a lot of time on persuasion and coercion. I think sure. there's more to be said about that. But I think another thing that he brings up in this in this introduction that I think is powerful is the idea of certainty be, being a feeling uh, uh, yeah, more akin yeah. to hunger than some rational thing that happens in your head. And I had I think, that highlighted too. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, and I think the reason that that's important, um, well, there's lots of reasons it's important, but certainly it's one of the reasons why um, having having a discussion that turns into an argument um, has such a powerful, is so powerful um, as an interaction between people because if you've ever been in a discussion with somebody else about whatever and you're that feeling of certainty, you can feel it in your body, right? When you're mm-hmm. arguing with somebody and you get more and more sort of hunk. It, I mean, for me, it often feels akin to anger, right? Like that, I, yeah. that I'm like, this person is so wrong and I need to figure out the way to tell them why they're wrong. But that, that gut level sense of rightness is, is really uh pernicious and and makes discussion and consensus building very difficult and you know his his quote later in the in the book about or later in the in the chapter about this is just you know debates have winners and losers and no one wants to be a loser so if you if if what's happening is you're exploring each other's ideas nobody feels like they're going to be the loser in there but if you're trying to tell somebody they're wrong yeah. then you get in a position where their their feeling of certainty uh overwhelms their ability to just engage with the ideas because now they're defending it's not their identity per se but their sense of certainty which is related to their identity well you think about like over the last i don't know a handful of years the the people that you've like probably aren't 
communicating with anymore. Maybe that uncle or that guy down the street or whatever who, you know, you recognize that every interaction you have with that person, when it gets to be like exchange of ideas, it just – you know, devolves into that where somebody gets yeah. angry. Right. And well, and usually that, both people, right? Right. Right. And then it's just like, okay, I'm just not going to do that. So either you put guardrails on the conversation and say, yeah. okay, we're not going to talk about politics. We're not going to talk about whatever. Right. Um, or you just kind of like amputate that person from your, your, from your, life. your life. Yeah. And neither of those things is, you know, the best solution, right? right. It's what, right? Because right. like, it's like what, what you, and I've done it. Is like we, we're creating yeah. a silo in which, okay, I, I'm going to protect in trying to protect my feelings. I'm also going to protect my beliefs, yeah, and the, and that I'm my my beliefs shouldn't be challenged. And it's like, well, no, that's just like bananas. Like right. my beliefs should be challenged. If I'm a, like, if I'm a person who believes in learning, and I, a person who believes that, you know, then. And, and I'm a, a still a learning person, right? Yeah. Who can be educated? And I could be open to like all other ideas, right? Even yeah. when they're coming from bananas, you know, sources, sources right. of bananas, sources of bananas, <laughs> all the bananas, <laughs> which is a monoculture. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a good point. And this idea of how do you like? And I think you know, to, exactly to your point, how do you? how do you negotiate or how do you think about conversations that you have with people that are like that, right? Who you, for some reason you and that person always like, as soon as you get to the point where you start talking about whatever it is that you're not supposed to be talking about, usually it's politics, but it doesn't have to be that. Right. It, it's something. It could be religion. It could be right. so many. It could be things. science teaching, right? Yeah. It, you know, I've had those conversations with, with teachers where like we're having a conversation and then all of a sudden it drifts into science teaching and suddenly we're in an argument right. and I'm looking back and saying, wait, I don't know. How even... do we get here? Like right. how do we get here? Yeah. How do <laughs> <laughs> how did I get here? Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, but I think his, you know, he talks about in this first chapter about doing this with his father and, and ultimately stepping back and saying, well, why, why is it I'm trying to convince him to stop yep. believing all this stuff? And he says to his dad, basically like, I'm doing this because I'm worried that you're being taken advantage of, that people are fooling you with misinformation and you're making bad decisions because you're not questioning the the veracity of the information sources that you're, you're um, using to make decisions. And so can we sort of talk about how you make the decisions that you make and what sources you trust? I mean, depending on the conversation, that can make a make a huge step forward to say, look, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong. I'm just here to talk about how you figured out how you felt right. Like, wh- how did you get to that point? And uh, and I think that's really the premise of of the book overall is that to to help to help people think about changing their own minds, which is what he says, they everybody has to change their own mind. You can't change somebody's mind. You have to first open yourself to the possibility that um, that your that your ideas might get changed. But sure. the purpose of the conversation is to explore the ideas, not for one side to win the debate. Yeah. We don't have models for that, though, on a lot of models. And I think that's no. like, and I think that's why, you know, teaching science like this is 
that. I mean, this shit, this type of practice should be happening in lots of classes. Yeah. I mean, science is a, a place for it, but that same sort of like discourse of ideas happens in other disciplines too. Yeah. You know, it happens in history, right? You know, yeah. it's like, it ha- hey, well, it happens in English. It happens, it happens in right. It art. happens, it happens right. everywhere. Absolutely. And I think the more that that happens, then, I mean, because like all of this stuff is, you know, is our understanding of the world is created through our through evidence and the discussion and interpretation of the evidence. Yeah. Right. And I mean, so right, whether that's science or whether it's history sure. or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's I mean, if we really wanted to bring it back to schools, that's what we're arguing for on some level is that Absolutely. schools should be persuasive environments where people are trying to come to consensus about ideas. Right. And that that schools could be places that model that and that would make them environments that better prepare kids to be in community with each other. Because if you're in a whole group of people and, and, you know, at the, at minimum, we're talking 25, 30 people in a class, right? There's going to be a lot of different ideas in there about any subject you pick, whether it's the happy, sad ball or whether it's catcher in the rye or whether it's, you know, what are the great paintings of the last, you know, of the 20th century, like, and and coming to consensus and and structuring and modeling and giving students practice about coming to consensus is what schools should be about because that's really what i mean his argument essentially is that's what made humans different than other species is our ability to to share and come to consensus as a group and and that produces better ideas than any individual can come up with on their own and so boom and well, and he even goes further than that. He says that societies that did that better were the ones right. that lasted. Yeah, were the ones that were able to, you know, exist for longer periods of times. And the and those societies that didn't, it broke down. Yeah. And so, I mean, these are this is like critical stuff here. This is, Im- it is. important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that that might be a place for us to get to some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think there were a ton of good ideas. We have a lot more to talk about in regard to these ideas. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's a it's a fascinating um opener for this book. Um and the, and he he delivers later on on some of this. I I you know, we can talk about, you know, what we think he does and doesn't do exactly, but um but this opener is certainly a tantalizing uh peek into the possibility oh, tantalizing. of tantalizing. It's tantalizing. tantalizing, all right. It is tantalizing. All right. Do you have uh, Do you have some joy that you would like to share with us? Yeah. Um. So I kind of stumbled on. I I I don't know how often people are still playing the wordles, the nerdles, the quartles, the octordles, and all that. I Ooh. I still pretty regularly do all that stuff. You know. Okay. Um. It's just like I get up in the morning. It's kind of like a way I might turn my brain on in the morning. You know, I have a cup of coffee. I go through the the wordle and the nerdle, and yeah. you know. The, so, yeah. so a couple of days ago, maybe about a week ago, I I happened onto Blossom, mm-hmm. and so Blossom is a newish game yeah. that you can get on the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary site. Um, I think they run one of these games. I think maybe the 
Quirtle. I don't know. But anyway, I saw a link of it. <laughs> these are just mouth <laughs> words to me. I don't play any of these games. So you're like Quirtle, Wordle, Quack Turtle, or whatever. I don't They're know. all word games. They're yeah. all word I mean, puzzles. I understand what they are. I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay. So what Blossom is, it's kind of like if you, for folks out there who might like subscribe to New York Times, the New York Times has a, a game called Spelling Bee, which you're trying mm. to, you know, make words. And that one, you're just trying to make as many words as you can, right? And it has like a letter at the center and there's usually letters around the outside. Well, blossom is similar. There's a letter in the middle that you have to include in, in, in the word. And then there's petals on around the outside. And each one of the petals has, uh, you know, a lettering in it. And you're trying to make as at 12, you're trying to get the best score you can with 12 words. So yeah, you have to okay. make 12 words. Yep. 12 words. Got it. Right. And it has to include the middle letter. Okay. But what happens? So that's why it's a blossom. Cause it looks sort of like a flower. It looks like a flower. Okay. And so your goal is to try to make the bigger words, right? Like larger, more letters. But then there's also a a a, a featured letter on each Ooh. petal that changes each round. Mm-hmm. That if you include that letter multiple times, you get more points. Bonus points. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a game that I like. It's Word. a game that I like. Awesome. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Like uh, you would think... I would be a word game guy, but I'm generally not a word game guy. And I don't know hmm. why I, I'm I, like, I would much rather do a Sudoku than I would a Wordle. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know I don't, like Nerdle is a math game. Um, I play that every day and I, 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 it's, you have a come up with, you have to come up with an equation. You have to match hmm. the equation. It's hard. It is hard. That, that usually one is like kind of punches me in the jaw, but I like, I'm a boggle guy. I'm like, I love mm, word games. Boggle. I love them. Scrabble. Oh my gosh. I, word games are, that's my jam. It is so my jam. All right. Well, I'll have to look at Nerdle. I, that sounds like a game I used to play um, in, I was an academic games kid in. Uh, were in, you a mathlete? You were a mathlete, weren't you? They, I was a mathlete. Uh, they didn't have mathletes, but academic games, there actually was multiple. So there was a linguistics. There was a there was a word game, but there was the one that I played most that I liked most was called Equations, and um, it it had it was a math game. Um, and I and I just I'm mean, I'm not bragging here, but in middle school I did go to the national championships, Ooh. and we did win the middle school uh, wow. division overall out of three teams out of the no <laughs> there were two teams and we beat up the other team in the parking lot before they came in and so it was really just <laughs> no but uh you had but someone yes. break their knee but... yeah we had somebody come we, we had somebody come in with a tire iron and kneecap them all yeah you got the reference nice yeah <laughs> all right what about joyce for you <laughs> besides that ref- yeah. cultural reference to tanya harding and, yeah um okay uh well, I'm going to do a food reference because um, I don't actually think I talk much about my food things that I cook or make or bake or whatever. So um, so one of the things that I have made for many years now that I really um, enjoy making and is really good uh, uh, is homemade enchiladas. And I make my own enchilada sauce and and make you know, we make the whole thing from, uh, from scratch. And so I hadn't done it in a long time. And I, and just last week I finally made enchiladas again and remembered how much I love them. So, um, that's awesome. I can, I can put a recipe in the, in the show notes, but, 
Um, I got like your own tortillas. Do you make your own tortillas? I I have tried that. I'm pretty bad at it. So I, I think, I think with tortillas, probably like with lots of things, you have to practice a lot to get good at it. So the tortillas I made, um, the couple times I've tried them are pretty, pretty terrible. I've never tried making flour. I always try making corn, but I have like a tortilla press and the masa and the whole thing. And I get in there and try and make it, but it just, I probably need to like stand beside somebody who knows what they're doing and, uh, and have them help me. Um, Cause I've seen yeah. it on like when, you know, on chopped, I always, want, yeah. there's always somebody who does it and they never really come out great, you know? No, and I don't know I what think the... it's really hard. I, well, it's, it, it probably is like many things, um, you know, a feel thing, right? Like I had a, I had a, a grandmother, actually great grandmother on my dad's side. And she was one of those bakers who baked entirely by feel, right? Mm. Like she would make these amazing sugar cookies and she never had a recipe. Like we're like, Oh, come on, Loni, you got to give us a recipe for this. And, and, um, and nope, never, never got a recipe because there wasn't a recipe. She would just put flour in and she'd put butter in until it felt right. And then she'd put, so I think there's probably a sense of like, to be really good at making tortillas, you have to make a ton of them. You probably have to make them bad, um so it's like anything like you know i I mean i've you know i've made my share of bad ice cream yeah sure and where i'm just like scooping it in like i will never make an avocado ice cream again that was like probably that was a legendary misstep yeah yeah well i I had it someplace and i was like oh this is really good i'm gonna try this and yeah no well maybe you just got to keep trying but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a thing. Yeah. I think so all that to say, no, I've never made my own tortillas, but I have made my own enchilada sauce. And, um, the first time I made it, <clears throat> I like essentially destroyed the whole kitchen in the process. It seemed like it was going to be really simple, but it like by the end it, there were like 50 pans and like splattered right. stuff all over the place. You're cleaning the ceiling. You're like, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but I've gotten much more efficient and better at it. And, uh, and, and I've got it now to the point where I can make them pretty well, but I need to make them more often. Like it's like cool. many things that you love. Like you should, you should make, you should make stuff that you love. Like you, you do with ice cream, right? I mean, find it's like, time for the joy, find time for the joy, especially those things. They're little, right? Like, it's right. Not, like, I mean, Making ice cream, making enchiladas, these are not things that take a lot of time. They're just no. things that, you know, and they bring a lot of joy. Yeah. So there you go. Absolutely. Well, we we covered a lot of territory today. We, yeah, we persuaded each other that joy yeah. is important. <laughs> joy is we, important. We did not coerce each other into that no. notion. Oh, that's oh. great. All right. So we'll catch right. you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.